It's really good to see um, everyone here this morning. It's good to see some guests as well. We hope that you feel at home here at Citizens. And, um, and if you have questions or want to know more about uh, what Citizens Church is about, you can look at our website, citizenselmira.ca, or you can talk to any one of us or myself this morning. I'd love to uh, just help and explain what the mission of the church is. We are a new church plant, and we are using this bit building from Trinity United, and we're happy to be in here, even though it's steamy and sticky and it's summertime, but we're just glad to be together and in person. So if you have a Bible, um, either in your hand or maybe you have a, a phone, let me encourage you to turn to Psalm 12. That's the psalm that we're going to be looking at today. We've been working through um, each psalm. Uh, we, we're in our 12th week now, and uh, we're going to stop at 15 and then come back to it someday. But we're taking a look at what God has to say in each of the psalms. And we've said this like over and over again. Almost all these first 15 psalms are lament psalms, okay? They are psalms that are kind of dark and down and they ask God questions. Our psalm today is about the power of words. And Paul Tripp, who is a Christian author, he tells a story about him and his wife and how they are, um, they're kind of on different wavelengths. He's born and raised in America and she was born and raised in Cuba. And so she's kind of on like Caribbean time. Like, so when they say this time to be somewhere, he's thinking that's the time. And she's thinking, eh, that's around the time. And so he tells a story about Easter weekend, okay, and he was, I don't think he was a pastor, I think he was just one of the leaders in the church, but it was Easter weekend, and, you know, it was like a big weekend, and he's thinking, we need to be there on time, and this church that weekend was having like an Easter morning breakfast, so they needed to be there at like nine o'clock, let's say, they needed to be there on time, and he goes into the bathroom, and he sees, we are not going to be there on time. He can see already, you know, what the future is going to be. They're going to be late. And so he starts kind of um, sending like little jabs to her, right? Like little comments like, hey, this isn't like a, you know, a fine dinner that we're going to. Like, let's get moving. He's given all these little Barbie kind of comments. Barbie? Is that a word? These little comments with barbs on them, okay? And he's just trying to subtly... Um, hurt her probably, right? And his son is there and he writes this, that his son, his nine-year-old son, looked at him and said this, Daddy, may I, may I say something? And Paul Tripp right then was like, I should have said no, you know. But he said, sure, son, you can talk. He says, Daddy, do you really think that this is the way a Christian man should be talking to his wife? Paul Tripp, he said back to his son, he said, he was trying to deflect, but he says, I don't know, what do you think? And then his son said this, Daddy, it doesn't make any difference what I think. What does God think? Oh, burned in the moment, right? But what that reminded Paul, what it reminded me this week is just the power of words. The power in the things that we say. And Psalm 12 is all about the power of words and that the words that we speak and the words that God speaks really do matter. And so we're going to look at three things in this psalm. We're going to look at the power of words, 
and we're going to look at the power of God's word, and we're going to look at the power of the last word. Okay, so if you're a note taker, that's kind of the three points right there. So let's look at Psalm 12, beginning in verse 1. We'll read those again. Verses 1 through 4, this is the power of words. Verse 1 says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Let's just stop there. So David is saying, this is what's happening around me. The people that are getting ahead, the, the enemies of David or maybe the enemies of the nation of Israel are telling lies and, and David is seeing it. It's, it's plain and clear for him to see they are telling lies. And, and the word of God reminds us often that um, the words that we say can be used for good and they can be used for bad. Maybe the most well-known passage that we um, can go to as believers is in James chapter 3. And James 3 verse 6 says this, And the tongue is a fire, a world of, unrighteous, of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. So James is saying, okay, the tongue is a powerful thing. But then he goes on to say this in verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Isn't that amazing? From the same mouth, and and we've probably all experienced this before, those moments that we would love to look back on and kind of cherish is maybe words where we've spoken life into someone or we've said something kind to someone or maybe you can still remember moments in your life where someone spoke like words of life to you and, and we're encouraged to do that as believers. We're encouraged to um, encourage each other in the Lord so that when we leave the presence of other believers, we're actually lifted up and our, our spirit is kind of built up as, as a man or a woman in Christ or as a child in Christ. And that's a good thing for our souls. And, and we feel it when we experience it. But James is reminding us here at the same time, the hard truth is that we can deeply wound someone. We can deeply hurt people with our words. And probably, I'm guessing I'd be safe to say that all of us have been hurt by some words probably at some point in our life and we've probably hurt someone with our words. Either um, just because we've said something stupid, I've done that many a times, where I've said something and I'm like, yeah, can I grab those words back? Nope, they're gone. Or just with like full-blown intention, we've said something that is deeply painful. And so we see that the, the ability to speak and the ability to communicate comes with this um, blessing and curse at the same time. And this is what David is reflecting on in Psalm 12. He's seeing it happen right around him. And he says, the thing that makes it so much more difficult, the thing that makes it so hard is that it is, what does he say? It is lies that are veiled in flattery, in flattery 
in flattering lips, he says, okay? And flattery just means this, insincere praise to further one's own interests. Insincere praise to further one's own interests. So someone has some sort of vested interest in something, and they're kind of giving you applause for affirming their cause. So they are really the beneficiary of it. And so David is saying, these lies that people are telling, the way that they're getting ahead, the way that the enemy is moving forward is actually by using flattery to kind of get their own way. And man, we live in a world like that today. Actually, honestly, the world has always been like that. Okay, it's not like today is something totally unique in history. It's always been that way that people have used lies to... Um, move their agendas forward, and it's no different today. We live in the same kind of a world. Whether it's issues related around, um, you know, like a big thing nowadays is kind of gender and sexuality. That's a, that's a massive topic. Or maybe it's even just around the idea of truth. Can truth be even known? Or maybe it's just this like sale of like, I don't know if we use this phrase, but the Canadian dream. We use the American dream, right? But we have a Canadian dream too, right? Of like getting all that you can in life and, you know, taking in everything that this world has to offer, you know, maybe working your whole life so that you get whatever that Canadian dream looks like. We are sold through millions and millions, maybe billions of dollars these lies that are actually for the benefit of other people. And so we live in the day and age that when you read Psalm 12, it should be like, that is us today. That's not just a problem that David experienced 3,000 years ago. That is us today. That is the world that we live in. That is the place where we go to work. Those are the places where we go out into. And so We're not left like wondering like, is this something that is only for someone else? No, it's actually a word for us today. And so David, his response is, and we'll we'll read it in a second, but his response is um, anger, okay? His response is just laying into the problem. But this is not something that David had not seen before. So if you think back even on David's life, multiple times he is confronted with um, circumstances like this, and he wants to respond. The, the one that stood up most in my mind this week was just the story of David and Goliath, right, where David is sent by his father to bring some food for his brothers because his brothers are on the front line of battle. David is not old enough to fight, and so David brings this food for his brothers, and he kind of, you know, goes up to the front line. He's chatting with his brothers, and in that moment, Goliath comes out. And Goliath comes out and makes a mockery of the God of Israel and makes a mockery of all the people. He's taunting everybody. And look what David says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. It says this, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is like, what's happening here, boys? Like, is anybody going to take care of this guy who is standing up here, spouting lies about God for his own benefit, for the nation of the Philistines? He's trying to destroy us. David's like, what's going on? And he actually, in the text, his, his oldest brother is like, hey, David, stop this kind of talk. Like, what are you going to do about this? 
None of us can do anything, so what are you, little shepherd boy, going to do? Probably wants to just send him back to his dad. Well, we know that David doesn't stop there, right? David is just like on fire for like, who is going to take care of this problem? So then a few verses down in verse 32, it says, And David said to Saul, so it's obviously gone further to the king of the, the nation. He says, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David's like, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of business. Because David is a man of passion. Okay, David is someone who when he sees injustice and sees what's going wrong around him, he is sometimes in the wrong way, but often in the right way. He's like, I'm in. I'm going to be part of the solution because God is for us as a nation. And so coming back here to Psalm 12, we see that David is in that same kind of a mode. He's in like go mode. Okay, he wants to take care of business. And how does he want to take care of business? Look at verse 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is mastered over us? So David is like, okay, here's what I'm willing to do. Give me a knife and let's just take care of business. Let's run through these people and like I mean, think of the graphic nature of that, right? He's saying, like, let's take care of business and shut their mouths, literally. And these are, we've talked about these before, these are what uh, theologians call imprecatory psalms. Okay, these are psalms, and there's many of them that kind of make us a little uncomfortable. We're like, why is that in the Bible? Like, that doesn't sound good. I don't think I'm supposed to say that nowadays, but it's in there. And these imprecatory psalms are psalms where most of the time it's David. He just lays into his enemies. And he just says, like, he says the first thing that is on his heart and it gets recorded. You know when you were told as a kid, you're like, just think before you say something. Hold your tongue. That's not what David is doing. David in that moment is like, this is what I want to happen. Lies are being told. People are being deceived through flattery. This is what should happen. And it's recorded for us in a psalm of imprecation. These psalms are often, um, kind of as you, as you look at them in their context, you begin to see that there's actually beneath them, and sometimes it takes a lot of looking, but beneath them there's actually this, this desire for the audience that would hear this to actually respond to God. So um, Bishop William Alexander says this, or he wrote this um, in, in a series of lectures he did in the 1800s. It says, Each of the psalms in which the strongest imprecatory passages are found contains also gentle undertones, breathings of beneficent love. So underneath these imprecatory verses or psalms, the desire is actually that people would respond to God, that they would come in line with God's will. And so even though the theology of some of the imprecatory psalms is like, wow, that seems off. That does not seem in line with what God is saying. There's actually, when you look at them, this, under, this underlying theme of like, would something cause people to turn their lives to be back in line with God. And the Psalms of imprecation also should show us that God is actually able to hear everything 
that goes on in our hearts and in our minds. All the, the pain and the difficulty, the things that we want to say, but we are hesitant to say them maybe out loud, God can hear them. These imprecatory psalms remind us that God's ears will not close to the first thing that comes to our hearts. That God is a listening God. That God can take anything that we say. And so David here, in this moment of understanding the power of words and kind of seeing what's happening around him, just lays it out for God and leans into, okay, God, you have to do something here. Even though it sounds like he wants to do it, that David himself wants to do it. And so, man, this should give us confidence to go to God with our hurts and with the things that we are longing for, the, the questions that we have of God. He is not afraid of them. We may be afraid to tell them to each other because we can't always handle it, but God can handle it. God can hear these things. So the power of the word, of words themselves. But now we move into verses 5 and 6 into the power of God's word. Okay, and David actually turns a corner here. So after verses 1 through 4, kind of explaining what's going on in the context of his life, and after kind of laying out for God what he thinks should happen, the first thing, he then turns to God himself. And verse 5 says this, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. So what David records then is actually what God is saying here. Okay, the voice has changed. So rather than it being David's voice, the voice is now the voice of God himself. And it says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are words like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So, man, what we see in verse 5 is that God is a God who is willing to, to step forward for those who are suffering. God is a God who is willingly placing himself in a position of help to those who are in need. So God's not responding here because David has lost his cool or because even the fact that there are people who are lying with flattery to try to deceive people. What you see here is the thing that actually moves God is the oppression of his people. The people who are suffering, the people who are groaning under the weight of, you know, whatever it is that they are struggling with or whatever it is that people are holding against them. And so God is a willing God. God is a willing God. Now one of the challenges to that is we want God to be more willing more quickly. Okay, so for most of us, we want God to be willing like maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Like I, that's, I'm cool to push it to tomorrow, right? But God is willing to come to our help and come to our aid, but his timing is not always the same timing as ours. The God of the universe, the God who put the whole world together and created everything knows infinitely more than you or I know, is able to see the circumstances of every single person around the planet and how they are interacting and what, you know, what, it's like dominoes, right? How one domino is going to affect the other. God is able to see all of those things. And could it be 
that in his infinite perfect wisdom, he sees the plan bigger than us. That he actually knows the end from the beginning. And so in God's willingness to save us or to rescue us, in his willingness to do that, he does it in his timing, in his way, which can be difficult for us to take, especially when it comes to the most difficult, the hardest moments in our lives. And looking out even, you know, at a group our size, you know, what, like 40 people, I know that there have been difficult circumstances probably that each family has had to face. Varied, unique, but yet difficult circumstances where God has um, responded in his timing, maybe immediately, maybe over years, maybe in, in many cases in ways that you're still waiting. You're still on the waiting end of things. And to hold out and to see that God is a God who is willing to rise up and to rescue and provide for you is hard to do, isn't it? When we're honest in our heart of hearts, it's hard to do. It's hard to trust in him. And so this is part of the reason why we actually have the Psalms. This is part of the, the gift of the Psalms to us. They are meant to be a help to us when we need to learn a lesson that is really difficult. And I was thinking this week of when um, Teresa, our youngest, was a baby. I was talking to her last night about this. Um, you know, the, I think it was the first day she was born, or the thumb was in her mouth, right? She was a thumb sucker from day one. And it, Liz and I were like, hmm, thumb's in, it's quiet thumbs out, she's crying. So we're like pro-thumb, you know? It's like, yeah, get that thing going. So it was, it was really good. But then after a while, we were like, okay, the thumb needs to go. We don't want to take this into high school, right? We need to somehow break this. And so we tried different things. And then eventually we had this stuff, maybe you've heard of it before, where you paint this kind of like really terrible tasting stuff on their thumb. And then the next time it goes in, supposed to cut the habit. And we were like, I don't know if it's going to work. You know, we bought this stuff. First application, it went in, came out, never went back in. Success, okay? That was a quick turnaround of a lesson learned. But the Psalms are actually meant to be like that for us. Not in terms of a gagging reflex, okay? Not that, but they are actually meant to train us, to get us thinking about, okay, what is God doing in this circumstance? The Psalms have been used for centuries now as a daily tool for believers. The, the Catholics and the Presbyterians would call it the rule of life, where they would take a Psalm daily, read it, and pray it for the purposes of bringing your thinking and your mind in line with what God is actually saying. Because for most of us, probably all of us, it's not easy to take in truths like this when we're in the midst of our difficulty. We just don't naturally do that. We push it away because we automatically think that God's working in my life should come with blessing, should come with comfort, should come with ease. And when hardship and difficulty come, our mind is kind of off kilter. And so the Psalms are meant to be this guide, this, this tool, this assist to get us thinking rightly about who God is, who we are, and what he's doing in our lives. 
And so the Psalms are this gift, and Martin Luther actually called them the school, okay? They are this training ground of songs and prayers that we regularly need as a part of our life. And, I mean, that was one of the, the, the reasons and the foundations for going through each psalm was to say, okay, what is God saying in each of them to us as his people here at Citizens? And so David kind of backs that up, this idea of taking in the word of God regularly with this image of a refining metal, okay? So in verse 6 there it says, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And so if you've been watching the Olympics at all, you've seen the medals, right? They get the gold, which I just found out this week, the gold is actually 98% silver, Okay, so it's like 1.2% of it is gold, but they call it gold. It's probably just the outside. You got gold, you got silver, you got bronze. And the ones that they made for the Tokyo Olympics were actually all made out of recycled electronics metals. Okay, so they took all these old electronics and they got the precious metals out of them, melted them down, made these metals. And so this is a practice, you know, that's been going on ever since people have been around of taking precious metals melting them down, and in ancient times, the way they would do it is they would melt it down, and then the bad stuff would kind of float up, and they'd scrape it off, melt it down again, scrape it off. It's, it's still, the process is still similar to that nowadays, but they use more chemicals. Back then, it was kind of fire, scrape, fire, scrape, and so David here is saying, listen, the word of God is so trustworthy. It's like precious metals that have been refined seven times. Okay, it's like seven times is, you know, usually used for a number of completion. So the trustworthy thing to go to, the best metal, the best silver for you to hold on to is this precious metal that is seven times refined. What's the point? The point that David is making is in, your, in the chaos of your life, the word of God is trustworthy. The word of God is something to turn to. It will feed your soul. It will help orientate your life to what God is doing around you when the chaos is ensuing. When you want to push it away, he says, go to it. It is pure. It is what will actually feed your soul. So there's power in our words. And there's power in the word of God. And then finally, there is power in the last word. There's power in the last word. The Bible is actually really clear that all of us are desperately weak. All of us are flawed in in so many ways. And we know that of ourselves. We could say that of ourselves. But the Bible actually just reinforces it. It kind of tells us again that, you know what, you are a human. Whether it is your physical body, there is a weakness to it. Or whether it's your spiritual life, there is a weakness to it. And so this is part of the reason why we are called to gather as believers. This is why we gather on Sundays. This is why, you know, for us here at Citizens specifically, we have chosen to have missional families be the place where we come together, where we build relationship, where we go on mission together, where when I don't feel like going to the word of God or I don't feel like believing in God, I have brothers and sisters who will come around me and they will say, we want to call you back to what God has for you. That's what we long and desire to see happen in missional families where we are actually for each other 
and we are fighting for each other because we know our own weakness and the word of God reminds us again that we are weak. It's like Moses in Exodus 17 where they are in this battle and Joshua is fighting in the plains and Moses is there and he has his staff that he had from God that he holds up and when he holds up his arms, they are winning and when he lowers his arms, they are losing. And so Aaron and her are around him and what do they tell Moses? Moses, man, like just get your arms up, buddy. Like just hold them up. When they're up, we win. When they're down, we lose. Hold them up. No, that's not what they say. They see, what do they see? Moses is actually weak. Moses can't physically hold his arms up. So what do they do? They come next to him. They put a seat down for him. He sits and they physically hold his arms up. What a beautiful picture of the weakness of, the weakness of Moses, man. Like one of the patriarchs the weakness of Moses and then his brothers coming next to him and physically holding him up. And this is what we are called to. This is what we want to see happen. This is what I you know, pray for God's gracious hand to do through Citizens Church that in the weeks, in the months where we can't hold our hands up anymore, where we just can't do it, but we want to see God's victory in our lives, we have brothers and sisters who hold our hands for us because the weakness is there. And so David, in his last assessment here, look at verse seven. He says this. This is kind of his like summary verse of the eight verses here. He says, you, O Lord, will keep them. So even after his, you know, his verses of imprecatory language, now he comes back to the reality. He says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation. If anything's going to happen, Lord, in this circumstance, in, in our life, in the nation of Israel, it's going to be you that does it. You alone. Twice there he's pointing us to you, O Lord. You, you. So this week I was... Um, listening to a, a podcast on church leadership and it talked about this church in Tacoma, Washington, uh, Soma, Tacoma uh, in, that rhymes, doesn't it? Soma, Tacoma, they're called Soma, okay? And they're in Tacoma, Washington. And in 2019, their senior pastor um, committed suicide. And it was just like a mass, obviously like a massive shock to the church and um, everybody was just like totally in a fog, didn't know how to kind of get through that. And then, you know, that's 2019. And so they went straight into COVID in spring of 2020. Another like kind of shot to the gut of the church. And the pastor there, Dawson Jones, he's the lead pastor. He'd actually been away uh, on other ministry uh, was supposed to be doing some church planting in Europe, ended up coming back to Tacoma to kind of help with all that was going on in the Soma Church there. And he was talking in this podcast about how to lead in difficult and hard circumstances. How do you actually get through it? And what he talked about was the Psalms and the, psalm, uh, the Psalms of Lament. 
And he talked about this, which we've talked about numerous times, about Walter Brueggemann's kind of three-step process of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Right? So this, this process of orientation where everything's kind of going good, it's going smooth, and that's where we all love to be. And then suddenly entering into this season of disorientation, whether it's a day or two months or two years. But then the, the fruit and the joy of coming out of disorientation back into reorientation, into a deeper, more close-knit relationship with God because you've actually gone through that disorientation. And he said this, and he, he says, man, he was kind of surprised that he had to learn this lesson, but he says, we don't like disorientation. That was his assessment. We don't like disorientation. We love orientation. We love reorientation. We don't like disorientation. And he, he, he brought it back to Easter, and he said it reminded him of Easter weekend, how we tend to forget and we tend to miss out on the Saturday of Easter weekend. We usually have a service on Friday, and then we're usually longing for Easter Sunday. That's like the, like the pinnacle of church calendar. But he said, man, what we miss is that on Saturday, on that day when it's quiet, when Jesus is in the grave, God is still at work. God is still doing something. And though we want to run away from the Saturday, there are times in our life where we need to still be awake to what God is doing on the Saturday in that moment of disorientation. And that's what David is saying here. He's saying, in our moment here, Lord, of lament and of struggle, and yes, we know we can go to your word, but ultimately what he falls on is you, O Lord. You will guard us. He's putting his confidence and his trust in God. And so even though this truth is um, probably hard for some of us to take, and there may be times where um, we don't believe it, where we're like, I don't believe it. I don't believe that God is actually going to do something in this season. It's, it's actually in that moment where we together are called to look to Jesus. Like Hebrews 12, 2 says, we look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. So we might not have all of the answers to every argument, but all we can do is look to Jesus. And so in preparation for leading up to communion, I hope you got one of these uh, little cups going in. I just want to read some verses um, through the Gospels, and most of them are going to be on the screen here, that are going to remind us that what God actually did through the person of Jesus, through his life, and through his death, was actually um, accomplishing for us the things that we could never accomplish for ourselves. And it gives us a glimpse into the fact that Jesus actually is calling us not to go through something that he has never gone through. Jesus himself experienced the, the deep pain that words could communicate. Jesus himself experienced the deep 
pain and groaning of hard circumstances, and yet he kept going. In John chapter 19, starting in verse 9, it says this, He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus is seeing before him the outworking of lies and deception and of people speaking against him. Then in Mark chapter 15, it says this in verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Peter says this when, when thinking back over what happened and what Peter himself would have probably seen visually. He says this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Words were used to accuse Jesus when he was innocent. Words were used to insult and make mockery of Jesus when he was the God in flesh. And when Jesus himself could have used his own words, his own creative power to destroy everything around him, he chose not to. So that we could actually stand in freedom here today and in the future when people use words against us, when we use words against people, Christ would be the provision for us. So that ultimately he could use the most powerful, lasting words ever, and it's the words, it is finished. Jesus said on the cross, everything that needed to be done, every provision that you ever needed, everything you longed for was totally accomplished through his death, through his willing death, when he could finally say it is finished. So this morning, we have the little wafer, which you can start opening because sometimes it's a bit of a process. We've got the bread here, which symbolizes the broken body of Jesus. And then we've got the red juice that is here, which is meant to symbolize his blood that was shed, that he willingly shed for our sins so that we could acknowledge, man, God, we, I'm broken. God, I have sinned. I have broken your will for my life, and now I come to you empty-handed, only relying on the, the body and the blood of Jesus. And so we remember his sacrifice for us. Let me just pray, and then after I pray, you can uh, take these elements, and then we'll sing a song together. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. 
Thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to not only know you, but to be in relationship with you and to have you change our lives here on this earth and also ultimately to be in your presence forever. Lord, we take this wafer and we take this blood as symbols and as reminders. And Lord, would you use them to um, get us thinking again about your sacrifice for us and to the reality of our sin being 100% put away. You have finished the work. And for that, we're grateful. Amen.